Hey heroes, this is your certified brass player, Angela. And this is your resident string player, Darian. And you're listening to Hero Talk, the show that is here to talk about real life and real women in music. Okay, let's get started. Hi, heroes. We are here today with Dr. Denise Von Galan, who is a professor of musicology at Florida State University. She specifically researches ethnomusicology, gender studies, biography work, and works by Charles Ives. She is actually one of my professors. So inspiring. I feel like every time you speak, I I don't know, like I feel like my mind goes... You always say something so inspiring, and I so enjoy your class, and I'm so excited to have you here so you can blow everyone else's minds. <laughs> I, I hope that blowing was a, a good thing. Then. Oh, of course. <laughs> there's no... Explosion. No, no, there's no bad version. Sweet. <laughs> we, we are, again, are so happy to have you, and she's written a number of books, yes. um, one of which I'm reading right now, The Biography by Libby, for Libby, Libby Larson. Yeah. It's really good so far. <laughs> I haven't finished it yet. But. So to start off, tell us a little bit about your musical background and what brought you into studying musicology specifically. The educational background is very standard. I have a bachelor's in piano performance, a master's and PhD in musicology, so nothing extraordinary there. But I think the part of my background that really affected me was the opportunity at a very young age to go with my aunt and uncle, who didn't have children of their own and so adopted me, um, to attend ballet and oh. opera and symphonies, all at um, Lincoln Center. Um, so they had subscription tickets to all of these events. They took me to art galleries. And so I grew up assuming that this was the opera that everyone saw. This was ballet that everyone saw. Yeah. Everyone heard the New York Philharmonic. Um, wow. And that was just a remarkable um, influence on me. Mm -hmm. Just having that and um, my home was more AM radio, um, lots of hymn singing at church. Um, and in my family, um, my dad loved to sing musical theater pieces. <laughs> so a very eclectic background, but an awful lot of influence for what I do today. Oh, nice. Yeah. So how did you discover your areas of study in musicology? Well, um, first I discovered that I loved reading and writing about the music that I sang and played much more than I liked performing. I'm not a person to get up on a stage very comfortably. In fact, I'm not a person to stand in front of a classroom very comfortably. <laughs> I don't like a lot of eyes on me. But um, musicology provided me an opportunity to take what I did in music and share it. Um, how I got into what I specialized in when I first entered musicology, Charles Ives, was through an experience as a senior in high school when I was part of a New York State school festival chorus. I think that's what it was. <laughs> um, conducted by Greg Smith. 
And one of the pieces he picked was Charles Ives' Psalm 67 for the chorus mm. to sing. Mm -hmm. That and a Mozart lacrimosa and a set of folk songs by Aaron Copland. Um, and we did the Copland, and that was lovely. And the Mozart brought tears to my eyes. I could barely finish singing it. But the Ives Psalm 67s absolutely fascinated me mm -hmm. because of my placement in the chorus giving me the chance to be suspended in kind of this harmonic liminal space. I had G minor and C major around me and trying to find where I was located was just magical. Mm -hmm. I'd never been in any kind of a musical place like that. And so I was about 17 years old and I thought I've got to figure out this phenomenon. And, and that's what, it, be, it became something of a mission uh, um, but I didn't know that I was going to have such a wonderful opportunity to explore that um, because I hadn't been thinking ahead to the 1976 bicentennial celebrations <laughs> at that point. And um, what actually happened was when the nation needed a composer to celebrate as a more American than apple pie, there was Charles Ives. Oh, yeah. yeah. That, right? Yes. And so here I had this almost like missionary zeal to understand what had happened to me singing this Psalm 67. And then the country saying, do something with Charles Ives. Yeah. Um, and so that, that was in 1976. And I kept thinking, I've got to do something with Charles Ives. Absolutely. And I didn't have the opportunity to um, in any serious way until I went back for my doctorate, which was at the late, in the late 80s. Um, I had two children in between. I did a lot of performing, a lot of collaborative work. I loved to do chamber work. Um, but in the back of my head, was mm -hmm. always, I've got to figure this out. I love that. Yeah. And yeah. so I went to. Um, my interview for my doctoral program at the University of Washington, and they said, do you have any idea what you're going to say? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I said, oh, yes. Charlie I, Ives. I know yeah. exactly what I want to study. Charles Ives and this sense of spatialness, spatial quality. Yeah. Um, um, and um, I remember the committee saying, now leave open the possibility that your mind <laughs> might change. And I said, no, I've been waiting 20 years to do this. This is what I'm going that. to do. And yeah. so that's exactly what I did. Do and you I, think that's what led you into ethnomusicology? Not ethnomusicology, but ecomusicology. Well, that's what I meant. I was saying echo, but e oh, eco. I'm sorry, yes, ecomusicology. My bad. No, not necessarily, Darian. It's, that's really a whole other trip that I didn't yeah. plan. Because I feel like that also has a sense of spatialness and place. Absolutely. And what I ended up doing was initially going to my advisor and saying, I want to write about this quality of spatialness, spatiality in Ives' music. And he said, oh, you've read Robert Morgan's article, Spatial Forms in Charles Ives. And I was crestfallen. I thought, no. It, Robert Morgan is this brilliant theorist musicologist and anything he's done he's said it all and I, I said oh no I thought this was mine oh yeah um, right and and um, he said well read it and I read it and I came back and I was crestfallen I was truly destroyed because I thought I can't follow Robert Morgan and so I I explained I expressed my dismay and he said Denny's 
Robert Morgan wrote a 20-page article. You're talking about writing a 350-page dissertation. Yeah. Really? Has he said it all? <laughs> um, and um, then um, he, you know, we, we went our ways for a while, and I came back and I said, well, you know, it's, it's this about space and it's that about space, and he said, I don't think it's about space at all. I said, what do you mean? That's, that was my feeling. He said, he said, check out place. And then I went home and I created this taxonomy, this big mm -hmm. category, sets of categories, all the pieces where Ives talked about place, how many of them he talked about nature mm -hmm. and place. <coughs> and um, it became evident. Mm -hmm. Then I started going to bookstores and noticing at that time all the books that were talking about place, none of them in musicology. For anyone who might not know, how would you describe place to someone who doesn't understand what you mean? Oh, place has so many meanings, <laughs> and I get at that in my first book. Like, oh boy, I have to start defining what I'm talking about. <laughs> because you can use it to say, um, you've got a great place here. Mm -hmm. um, come back to my place. And we understand that meaning. But when I use the word place, I'm talking about some defined location within a larger space. So the space can be quite infinite around it, but the place is more clearly delineated. And the way I was interested in place was how those delineated locales so informed Charles Ives. Mm -hmm. He kept writing about New York City, he kept mm -hmm. writing about places in Connecticut. He kept he wrote about a caged animal at a zoo, baseball, you know, yeah. baseball, but yeah. taking place in a, you know in a field. Yeah, um, and so place was very important to him. Um, and then it became very personal when I went to do research in Connecticut. I have relatives that are from Connecticut, but I didn't realize that I had as a very young child, like two, three, four years old, actually summered by the Housatonic River, which is one of the major pieces that he yeah. writes. Um, and so I described this experience to my dad. I said, it was like deja vu, like I've been there. And he said, well, you were. You swam in the Housatonic, you did this. <laughs> and we stayed in a relative's boarding house just you know, upstream. Yeah. Um, and so then I realized if place had embedded itself in my memory, unknown to me, unconsciously, really, or subconsciously to me, how present it must have been for Ives, who was very aware, always thinking about his place. And that's how I kind of moved into place studies. But still, there was no ecomusicology. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know the term existed, and I don't think it really did. But when it did become a bit of a, a field of study. Then people were coming to me and saying, you wrote this book, and, and it's like the first book that talks about ecomusicology. And I'm thinking, you couldn't possibly have talked about that. I don't know what the term means. So <laughs> yeah. um, but I thought of it as natural, well, not always natural, because there are urban places as well, but sites. S-I-T-E-S, those kinds of sites, where something happens um, that is definable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It, it has boundaries around it, and it has meaning, meaningful places. And so that's how I got into 
ecomusicology by someone telling me that that's what I've been writing about. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's kind of a that's backdoor way of doing <laughs> it, right? Yeah. I took a class my master's at Ithaca College with um, Timothy Johnson, Dr. Yes. Timothy Johnson. He wrote baseball and Charles Ives music. Yes. So, And I just fell in love with Charles Ives. And when I was mm-hmm. reading your bio and all mm-hmm. about you and like how much you've like worked with Charles Ives music, which is I got to read your book now, but (laughs) (laughs) um, do you find that you're still like, you know, written your dissertation, you've like written books and articles about, do you ever find yourself going back to researching about this kind of stuff of Charles Ives music or? Oh yeah. Yeah. I cannot break that hold, Mm -hmm. which can be problematic because there are a lot of people who are after him because he's misogynist and probably racist in some way that's just very cultural mm-hmm. um, but absolutely I'm deep in a project on Charles Ives right now oh, really? and it has to do with the fourth movement of this Concord Sonata oh. which is called Thoreau mm-hmm. and uh, we know Ives read uh, Henry David Thoreau's book Walden and um, how problematic it is that movement quotes a Stephen Foster tune Masses in the Cold Ground well now is not the time to celebrate anyone who is quoting Stephen Foster. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do I get around this idea mm-hmm. or work with this idea that, yes, this is fraught, this is truly problematic, mm-hmm. um, but here's Ives quoting Thoreau in, as he writes in Walden, and so I'm talking about Walden Pond, I'm talking about Concord, Massachusetts, which we think of as you know, the place where the shot was heard around the world, you know, the, the, the home of independence. And actually, there were slaveholding ministers, attorneys, and doctors in Concord, Massachusetts. So wow. I am definitely, I'm in Ives, like up to my eyeballs <laughs> right now, and this is my next big project. I love that. Yay. Have you worked with Dr. Johnson before? I have not, Ives? though. I own I own his book. Oh, you do? Yep, <laughs> I, yep. I own every Ives book. That has been another one of my missions. Yeah. Any Ives book that comes out, I have at least one copy. I love that. Now yeah. you can tell him about the interview and be like, I "Hey, we yeah. yeah. <laughs> talked about you." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> very true. Uh, I did want to also ask you. I remember you once mentioning to me that when you were studying musicology, that there weren't a lot of women in your classrooms and around you. Do you think if there were, it would have shaped your area of interests differently? I love that question. And I was so glad you gave me the questions ahead of time because I thought about that. Um, I am not sure that it would have shaped my initial area of interest area because that was laid in when I was 17 and I sang Psalm 67 and then discovered that I actually have a relative by marriage that's in the Ives family. Oh, So, no I mean, way. I'm really, I, but I didn't in know there. that. I am so in there, right. <laughs> um, what I would have maybe experienced differently was not my intellectual interests, but my sense of camaraderie. I was, in my master's program, the only female. Mm-hmm. There was one female faculty member. She was a medievalist. She was Sarah Fuller. She was absolutely wonderful, but not in my area. My doctoral program, I was the one doctoral student who was female. I had one female uh, musicologist. She was a medievalist. 
Joanne Tarakani, marvelous, but not in my area. When I came here in 1998, I was the only female faculty member, and I remained that way in musicology for 14 years. Wow. So if I had depended on women to change my <laughs> career trajectory or my area of interest, it would have had to wait and, you know, until I was in like my 50s or something. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it was set from, from that singing experience, which is, I think there's nothing that gets into your body more than music. And you have to kind of beware how powerful an influence it can have on your career. What I do today is because of Greg Smith choosing Psalm 67 to sing. Mm -hmm. You know, years and years and years ago. Yeah. Um, but the sense of collegiality, of just being in it with others, that I really sorely missed. Mm -hmm. um, and it was the case of the discipline at large. Um, I, would, I went to my first AMS, American Musicological Society conference in 1987, and the number of women at the conference could fit in HMU 125. Oh, wow. Nice. Wow. For it anyone who doesn't know, it's just a normal-sized oh, classroom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I not everyone, I guess. No, it's not very large. Um, it was quite overwhelming. Mm -hmm. um, and then I also noticed that the women who were there were dressed to look like men. They were dressed in dark suits and white blouses. And mm -hmm. um, so if you just kind of panned the uh, a foyer, it would be hard at first to even know that there were women there wow. because the uniform was mm -hmm. you dress in a suit. Um, the very first paper I gave, not at AMS, but at SAM, the Society for American Music, I decided, no, I'm going just the way, as who I am. I'm not going to look like a man. And so yeah. I went in a peach suit with beige <laughs> Love shoes. It. And I'm, I'm sure that I, I just wasn't taken seriously, in part because of that. Well, being a woman, number one, talking on Ives, what am I doing? Um, and then dressed looking like probably a suburban housewife. <laughs> you know, I'm sure, I don't know what they thought. Yeah. But I had to convince them otherwise by the, by the paper I gave. By what you did. Yeah. Mm -hmm. By what I did. Mm -hmm. So that was a real wake-up call for me. Just be who you are and do the best. Yeah. You don't have an option. Yeah. That's your only, that's your only course. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you think that's changed now? I think it has changed in, well, it, it, certainly in demographics. Um, there are many, many more women. There are many more people from outside, kind of the center, um, who are there, and it's wonderful. Um, I think that women probably still have to be better than mm -hmm. their male colleagues in order to be taken seriously out of the gate. Mm -hmm. Once you're out there and people say, oh, yes, it's, it's yeah. her, she's mm -hmm. good, then it's fine. But there's still a much higher bar that a woman has to um, climb, mm -hmm. achieve, um, and overcome because the expectation is you might be, you know, uh, like a one-off. This might be your one paper. This might be the mm -hmm. other thing you do well. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and I'm trying not to project 
old attitudes onto the, <laughs> you know, the current scene. Yeah. But I do think it's still, it's still a bit of an issue. How do you think a way we could go about bridging that gap, the discrepancy between recognition of, not recognition, but representation of men and women in music? Oh, I think that we need to first think of what constitutes music more broadly. Um, that our sense of music has been very much designed by valuing composers and valuing conductors and valuing virtuosic performers. Mm -hmm. But that's a small part of the whole musical ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So if you look beyond the kind of marquee figures, right, if you look to who's doing the administering of arts organizations, who is the overwhelming demographic in Music Teachers National Association, right? Who is um, doing philanthropic work? Mm -hmm. These fields are overwhelmingly women, mm -hmm. but we don't necessarily think of that as part of music making. Mm -hmm. um, in 1998, um, a scholar named Christopher Small wrote a book whose title was Musicking. Mm. And musicking for him was a verb, and it embraced everything involved in the making of music. Mm -hmm. So not just the composing, not just the performing, but who's collecting tickets, who's getting the artist to the performance venue. Mm -hmm. And when you think of it that way, it's not so much that you need more women doing X or Y, you need recognition of all the people who are doing musicking. Yeah. And there I don't think that there's a big imbalance. Yeah, that mm -hmm. makes sense. And in fact, in the early parts of the 20th century, so the early 1900s, oh, way into actually the 1940s, there was great fear that music had become such a feminized discipline that if you were going to make it serious, you had to se uh, separate yourself mm -hmm. from all of these women. And so the founders of the American Musicological Society went out of their way to distance themselves from women because the women's presence was so pervasive. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a little different when you say, where are the women? Well, the women are there in droves, yeah. but not necessarily in the most highly valued positions. And where is, what's, who's creating that hierarchy? Yeah. It's, not, it's not coming from above. That's a societal mm -hmm. value. Yeah. But that was an interesting point, though. I've never thought about it that way. But it's true. We do kind of value some professions in music more than others. Oh, yes. definitely. We value certain instruments more than others. Yep. <laughs> and it's interesting who gets valued. Yeah. All right. And, and I don't know the answer to this, but as a violinist, you know, who are the violinists that, that you value? It's a Perlman. It's a Perlman, <laughs> right? I mean, you could name five of them. Oh, yeah, When would sure. you get to a woman? Hilary Hahn. Okay, right, That's and one. she's young, yeah, younger, right? And thanks to um, Jennifer Higdon, yeah, who did a great deal of, of work mm -hmm. <laughs> for for Hilary Hahn, right? or Anne Sophie Mutter, right? She's pretty great Absolutely. as well. Absolutely. I don't know. I have a lot of female violinist <laughs> examples, right? right, right. No, <laughs> but I think it's that's an interesting thing um, when you say, "Well, 
let's take the instruments that are most valued mm-hmm. and then who are the people that we associate i know i play trumpet and so it's oh dear exact opposite of poly <laughs> violin but yeah. there i mean there are a few of course that mm-hmm. are like on top of the list right. that someone would name you know like right. allison balsam or something like yeah. that well For and, sure. and violin was one of the instruments that women were allowed to play mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. harp also flute in the 20th century not in the 19th um, so yeah. y- you'll find longer histories of, of learning that instrument, mm-hmm. which gives you a more depth in your the heritage that you can draw from. That mm-hmm. makes sense. Do you think this change starts on the stage or in the classroom? I think it starts in the home with a newborn. Oh, can you explain <laughs> that? As with all social values. By the time a child gets to school, let's even let's not take preschool because then you're do- that's really mm-hmm. off. But by the time they get into kindergarten, you're dealing with a person who already has values that have been modeled, mm-hmm. that they have absorbed unknowingly, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so if you can surround our youngest people with respectful adults who they're going to emulate, whether you intend them to or not, (laughs) um, who expose them to a range of people um, who are accomplished in a range of ways. It's not a surprise then for them to discover, oh, women can play trumpet, Mm -hmm. men can play harp. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right? They're not surprised then. but when we expect the schools to do magic with an art form that is increasingly being removed from schools, it's true. Then you, you're asking the schools to do way too much. Yeah, it's it's in the house, it's in the home where those values are are anchored, are rooted, and it's not that hard to do now mm-hmm. to to find ways of exposing our youngest people to mm-hmm. a variety of traditions, practices, professionals. Yeah. Speaking on some of the work that you've done in your life, with Libby Larson, what was your experience working with her and writing her biography? It was the ideal relationship I would want to have with any subject of any book I have ever written and I, or anything I've ever studied. Mm-hmm. Um, I have never met a person of her level of accomplishment who is as open and humble and willing to reflect, to not give you canned answers. That's really troubling. Mm -hmm. A lot of people who have achieved the same level of accomplishment as Libby Larson um, have been interviewed so many times that it's like pushing a button and an answer comes out. Yes. And then you realize, you read an interview, and you say, oh, they said the same exact thing to <laughs> this interviewer and that interviewer and the third, you know, whatever. Yeah. Libby was never that way. Um, I first came upon her when writing um, my Skillful Listeners book, mm-hmm. and I noticed she did a lot of work writing about nature. She was at the University of North Carolina Greensboro working uh, with their opera company, and I thought, I can get to Greensboro much more cheaply and easily than I can get to Minneapolis, where she normally is. Mm -hmm. So I trotted on up to Greensboro and asked if I could interview her. 
because I was working on this skillful listeners book. Oh, yes, absolutely. Oh, that's great. I'll give you, how much time do you want? Yeah. Now, when I interviewed Steve Reich, his agent called me and said I could have 30 minutes. When, <laughs> I, went to, when I went to Libby Larson, it was, how much time do you want? And that's I went awesome. to Libby Larson. Yeah. Um, from the starting gate, it was a wholly different experience. And I had interviewed a dozen composers by that time for different reasons. Mm -hmm. No one was ever as thoughtful and forthcoming as Libby Larson. Um, and so that was that book. That, was, that came out in 2013. I kept thinking about this, and I kept thinking about the way she had been treated uh, in her university, um, in general, in the art music world. And it was pretty shabbily. Mm -hmm. So I thought, I, I want to write about this person. So I got in touch with her, I emailed her, and I, I said, I would like to talk with you again. And so she said, well, call me. Here's my, here's my personal number. Oh, wow. <laughs> and this is how she always was. She's so nice. And so <laughs> I called her, and I said, you'll remember me. We talked in Greensboro. Oh, yes, of course I do. And thank you for the work you did in Skillful Listeners, blah, blah, blah. I said, well, now I'd like to write a biography of you. And there was... Radio silence. Oh, really? Just absolute silence. And uh, I waited, <laughs> thinking, what's happened? And she <laughs> said, well, now that I've picked myself up off the floor, <laughs> and it was oh. just that same humility and spontaneity and wow. um, openness that I had detected. I guess it was about 2009 or 10 that I first interviewed her. Mm -hmm. Um, and I thought, oh, I've got to do this, and I can see why you are not in that New York in crowd, because yeah. you don't behave like a superstar. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you, know, you behave like a working musician composer. Yeah. This is your job. You think it has social value. You do it because people love music, and you have something to say, and this is clearly something you do exceptionally well. Um, and we went from there. But that humble response yeah. just really clinched it for me. I thought, I really want to write about this person. Yeah. Um, and then it was years of interviews, and I was up in her living room, in her kitchen, in her archives, wow. and she was just, you know, what do you need? What do you need? What do you <laughs> need? There was nothing that was that was out of bounds. One day she had to take her dad to a, a doctor's appointment and she gave me boxes, multiple boxes, um, in total disarray, of photographs, family photographs. Wow. That she hadn't gone through. They were just boxes of photographs. Mm -hmm. And so while she's gone with her dad, I'm sitting there looking at these thinking, oh my gosh, these are really personal photographs. I shouldn't be looking at these. But that's how she was. Just open. Open and trusting. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that that was a huge part of what made that book work. I trusted her because she was not telling me what I could and couldn't say. Mm -hmm. And she trusted me, in part because she had actually done a lot of research. She read what I had written. That's true. Yeah. She, had, she had kind of done a background search on me. <laughs> Which I think anyone should, if someone's going to come into your life. 
So there was immediately this sense of trust. And then it was, you know, ask me, ask me whatever. And she'd say, you, you need to see my school. You need to see my Catholic school where I went. And so we got in a car and we drove to the school. And we're walking around. And mm-hmm. just, this is my classroom. This is where I worked with Sister Colette. And, <laughs> and just, just so open that that is the ideal subject. There are very few like that. Um, I can name, well, I don't know that I can name any like that. There's Anaya Lockwood is very open, but not kind of that, that yeah. open. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But there are many who... Oh, I can imagine. Yeah, they have their public persona, mm-hmm. and they have their private life, and there's a clear line between them. And with Libby, it is completely porous, um, which is not to say there aren't boundaries around her family, but um, as far as, you know, ask me any question. And I did. That's, that's really cool. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Sounds like a very immersive experience. Thoroughly. Thoroughly. And it was this, <laughs> writing her biography gave me a wonderful excuse to not work on the book I was supposed to be working <laughs> on, which was really problematic. Um, and it was sort of, oh no, I need what I can learn from this person at this moment. I can keep going with Libby and we're, we're in yeah. touch and um, she's currently either in Cincinnati or in Sacramento, I can't remember. She's between places um, at a festival and also um, hearing a premiere of a new work of hers. And <laughs> so I'm very, I think it's called Sunstrider. Um, so I'm very interested to talk with her about that. It's so great hearing about Libby Larson and your uh, relationship with her, the conversations you've had with her. Um, what are some? What's like the biggest challenge that you've had to overcome as a musician, person, or musicologist? I think it's a lack of encouragement to do what I wanted to do mm. in music, um, which was to be more the scholar, the writer about. I got a lot of encouragement to be a performer because I could play very easily. I had no problems with memorization, all of those things. I played starting when I was four. We had a grand piano in the house. I loved playing. My sister, who was older, who had lessons, hated playing. (laughs) So she would get the lessons. I would listen to her, and I would practice. And my parents thought that she was practicing. Um, So it was a wonderful ruse. It worked for about a month or so, and then they figured out um, that Carol wasn't making any progress, even though she sounded really good during the week. <laughs> uh. <laughs> but the biggest challenge was the expectation of others that as a, as a girl child, I would want to sing or play piano or, or smile when I was doing those things, yeah. right? Um, rather than have someone understand that that's work, that you're really focused. This is, this is not like Liberace sitting at a keyboard, he's really looking at the audience and Mm -hmm. not thinking about the music. Um, So I think a lack of encouragement to do what I wanted to do, um, which was to be a thinker and a writer and a teacher about music, Mm -hmm. not necessarily a studio teacher. And that was another thing. I had trouble convincing my, my dad in particular that there was a profession talking about music, mm-hmm. um, that playing it or composing it. Um, the assumption 
um, that I, the assumptions that I unknowingly and unconsciously placed on myself, I took society's assumptions mm -hmm. of what were the right places for girl children who were musicians. Um, and it, it was easy to do that because there were very few biographies written about young women who became musician scholars. Mm -hmm. I mean, I searched, and this was something that Whitney and I talked about, how I could find a biography on Annie Oakley, on Clara Barton, who um, founded the American Red Cross, and I could find one on Madame Curie, who discovered radium. But where is the, the biography mm -hmm. for a young girl child for an artist mm -hmm. um, or a musician or, I mean, anything. There were no models. And so I took that and unknowingly thought, well, there are none. There's no one like what I want to be, so I can't be that. Mm. And we do that all the time, mm -hmm. which is why it's so important that students see a variety of people yeah. doing a variety of jobs because otherwise they get typecast so easily and so subconsciously. Um, it wasn't until I actually did see one female faculty member for my master's degree and one female faculty member for my doctoral degree that I thought, I can do this. Yeah. Um, I went to a lot of lectures and I don't mean this to sound conceited in any way, but I went to a lot of lectures and I listened to this man, any man, um, well, many men, giving lectures, and I thought, that I could do so much better than that. <laughs> I could yeah. do so much better. Why don't I see myself mm -hmm. in that role? Yeah. Well, it's very easy if you don't see a role model. A yeah. role model, yeah. you have to have extraordinary ego, I think, <laughs> and a support system saying, sure, you can do that too. Mm -hmm. yeah. But that wasn't my whole experience. Yeah, which is why representation is like so important. It is yeah. so important. For the next generation, you know, even of like conductors and composers and performers. Exactly. Exactly. Um, we expect conductors to look a certain way. Yeah. Even now, when I see Victoria Bond, films of her Conducting, I'm thinking, oh my, it's mm -hmm. it's Victoria. Yeah, uh, how can she do this? She's so tiny. I expect, <laughs> you know, I expect my conductors to be big. Yep. Yeah. Um, here's a woman who's maybe five foot one, five foot two. Yeah, it's true. Who has to do all kinds of extraordinary things? Wear high heeled boots, tease her hair up so that she becomes like five foot six, <laughs> <laughs> and still she's handicapped. Yeah. So this this idea of the biggest challenge, it's not having role models um, and my believing that the only professions for me were those where I could read about people, because mm -hmm. I was always a big reader, or see them with my own eyes. Mm -hmm. yeah. you know, and I never went to an opera performance where there was a female conductor. Never saw the New York Philharmonic with a female conductor. The only place I'd see a lot of females was when they took me to the ballet. And then yeah. I'd see a prima ballerina. And I thought, well, that's lovely, but I don't want to be a dancer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
in trying to offer more representation, how do you think we can avoid tokenism in our work? By blowing up the curriculum. <laughs> <laughs> nothing, nice. nothing short of rethinking what the goals are of everything we teach. Tokenism happens when we actually add to a narrative that didn't have place for these people to begin with. Mm-hmm. So that the thinking of the narrative was created to privilege certain types of people doing certain types of things and looking certain ways, even mm-hmm. though we don't talk about that. They look certain ways. So it's not a matter of fitting people in. It's a matter of, I'm a great fan of a blank piece of white paper. <laughs> and it is, here's a piece of white paper. What do you think is important to teach? Yeah. And when you start there, you don't have a chance to do tokenism, right? Because ev- it's an open and even playing field. Mm-hmm. And that's what I, I think is the answer, is to put aside what you have been teaching not because the things that you've been teaching are not worth teaching, but the thinking that put those things there needs to be completely revamped. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's, that would be, and that's what we're doing in actually in the musicology area. We're starting with blank white paper. Oh, that's great. And saying, what do we want our students to come out with at the end of a four-course undergraduate sequence? What kinds of things do we want to teach <laughs> our graduate students? Yeah. Yeah. And now we don't have a course that's called Baroque music, <laughs> but you can get to Baroque music mm-hmm. doing all kinds of different things, and yeah. you can get at it if you are inclined to get at it through something like environmentalism, through gender studies, through global soundscapes, through mm-hmm. rhythm studies. You can get at anything that way without replicating the very narrative that creates the opportunity for token. Yeah. yeah. I do have one more question. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's back to Charles <laughs> Ives. Oh, I was thinking about this because um, you're talking about curriculum. Have you thought about teaching it, or I'm not sure if you could. I'm not sure the process, but teaching a class about Charles Ives. And I have thought about it because, oddly enough, in my 24 years here, I have never taught a course really? on Charles Ives. I would probably not want to now because Aww. what I would, what I can bring his his music in mm-hmm. to. Almost any course I teach. Yeah, you talk about it in our I class. I talk about it in the environment class a lot. Um, but what I would avoid doing now, why I would not teach him now, is because it would be another way of privileging mm-hmm. 15 weeks, True. a whole course on a white male <laughs> composer. Yeah. Whom, whose music I adore. Mm-hmm. And if I had to pick a piece, I would go back through my eyes list and say, let me die listening to this, right? Yeah. Um, but because this moment right now requires a different way of thinking. And he can be part of, as he is in our environment class, um, he can be part of things. But I don't want any more courses for the <laughs> foreseeable future that are a course on yeah. Aaron Copeland, Charles Ives, Beethoven. I don't want these courses yeah, right now fair. because... They have gotten so much air time. That's so <laughs> true. And, You're right. and ink and recording time. Yeah. If you drive in the eight miles I do every morning and you listen to WFSQ, mm. I don't know how many times I am treated to yet another Beethoven symphony. Oh, yeah. This morning, 
parts of Beethoven 8. I heard and I'm thinking, really, does Beethoven need more time? <laughs> Who else could, and it's not because, and I'm married to a Beethoven scholar, but it, it's not that there isn't magnificent music or that someone like Joan Tower hasn't said, I learned everything I know about architecture, music architecture from Beethoven. That's not the point. It's who else deserves to be heard and studied. It's true, yeah. And that's why probably I will never teach a course on Charles Eyes. Fair enough, yeah. <laughs> It's sad. I get it, yeah. It's sad, but I can get at him and his, his accomplishments yeah. in all kinds of ways, as I do. I, mm -hmm. I find a, a I'll way have to take to that help. class then. I want to find <laughs> ways to bring I really him. like it. Yeah. All right, we are going to end on a fun note. We yes. always end with some trivia, and Angela is going to be hitting each of us with three questions. Yes. So you'll get three random questions. I'll get three random questions, and whoever gets the most wins just for giggles. They're all related to music and pretty much what you've done. So yeah. okay. Dr. Von Glan, question number one. Which composer was an Italian composer and singer of the Baroque period? She published eight volumes of her own music, more secular music in print than any other composer in the of the era. Um, was it Barbara Strozzi, Ethel Smith, or Harriet Abrams? Well, Barbara Strozzi. Okay, yes. <laughs> <laughs> See, they're not hard. <laughs> Just thinking for their dates, you got it. Okay. Um, question number two. You should definitely know this one. What was the name of Charles Ives' insurance company? Ives and Myrick. Okay, I didn't have to give you the <laughs> multiple choice. I put NetLife and State Farm as the other two. Oh, well, <laughs> like multiple different, different insurance, but <laughs> yeah. All right. Awesome. Question number three. In what year did you win the ASCAP Deems Taylor Award for the publication, The Sounds of Place, Music and the American Cultural Landscape? Was it? Or do you want to guess? 2004. Okay. You yeah. would. Yeah, yeah. You got it all right. <laughs> I think you're the first person we've had who've answered all three correctly. Oh, my. I think uh, <laughs> well, Ellen Willock did as well. Oh, did I she? Yeah. You gave me uh, some really awful questions. <laughs> you know, I didn't watch, too hard. watch me like get none of them right. But you right. can help her if you really okay. want to. Okay. Tarion. Yeah, this one is maybe difficult. <laughs> um, okay. Question number one. Yeah. Which composer was an American composer and folk music specialist? Her music was a prominent exponent of emerging modernist aesthetic and a central member of group of American composers known as the ultra-moderns. And I can define that if you'd like. Um, ultra-moderns were just four composers at the forefront of mid-century avant-garde movement. I'm not going to tell you who they were because I'll give the answer away. But they were all influenced by the expansion of tonality and the acceptance of greater dissonance that had been exported from Europe. Okay, so question again. <laughs> okay. um, which composer was an American composer and folk music specialist? Her music was a prominent exponent of emerging modernist aesthetic and a central member of that group, which talked about ultra-moderns. Was it A, Ruth Crawford, 2, Barbara Strozzi, 3, Amy Beach? I feel like I need to know this. <laughs> you gotta help. Okay, I don't feel like it's Amy Beach. She's too romantic, for me, I would think. So I'm going to say no to her. Okay. What was the second? Barbara Strozzi. No, it's not her, so it has to be number yeah. one. Yeah. A little help with Dr. Von Glan. <laughs> <laughs> she was like holding up number one. like. <laughs> All right. Question about violins. Really? Yes. This okay. is, I really hope I know this. <laughs> I hope I got the right answers. Um, Stump me uh, on my own <laughs> instrument. Question number two. Violin bows are generally made out of how many pairs? A- 200 to 300, B, 150 to 200, or C, 1,000 to 2,000 pairs? I think it's the third answer. 
No? no I know it's a lot. Apparently, from what I've... I've never been able to count. That's fair. <laughs> Tell me what I've researched. It's 150 to 200 hairs. Really? On a violin bow. I thought you were going to ask me, like, what kind of wood? And I was like, oh, I can kind of answer that. <laughs> I'm, you're not supposed to touch them, so how am I supposed okay, to count fair them? Enough, fair enough. I don't know. <laughs> I was looking up some stuff I could talk about. That's so interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. All right. Schooling me on my violin knowledge <laughs> from a brass player no it's okay it's okay all right this is gonna go the, the question number three is an instrument we've never talked about before um but i want to change up you know what we're asking on the podcast a little okay. bit so this is an easy one who invented the saxophone was it adolf sax b heinrich stolzel or c anton Bidinger sax their last name is sax oh goodness <laughs> She's Bonk helping Bonk. me again. <laughs> so it's number one. Yes, number one. Adolf Sachs. B. Henry Stotzel. He created the the valves, um, on for like brass instruments. And then C. Anton Weidinger is Anton Weidinger, not sax. I just added the sax to confuse you. <laughs> He's a trumpet player. <laughs> so. So he named the instrument after himself. Pretty much. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yes. Adolf Sachs. <laughs> well, that's it. Doctor uh, Von Blon has won. Yes. yes. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today, and we we hope to talk to you again. And I know I'll see you tomorrow in class. We, will. <laughs> we, we can we can talk about my my next book. Yes, the cover of which is on the door. Oh, is it really? Well, we'll take that's the one that I actually used the Libby Larson biography uh, writing experience to get away from because oh. I really didn't want to write that book. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. I'll so. Oh, well, yeah. thank you again. It was so, so much fun. Yeah. Um, so I'll, we'll talk to you next time. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Absolutely.